Welcome to the latest edition of the Mind Gut Conversation podcast, a place to learn about new ideas from thought leaders in the area of optimal health, the science of mind gut microbiome interactions, food, and the environment. Today, I have the great pleasure to speak to Larissa Trinder, Assistant Vice President of Arts in Medicine at New York City Health and Hospitals, who is responsible for stewarding a collection of more than 4,000 works of art, the largest such collection in New York City. In addition, she has been creating and implementing programs for patients, staff, and the community that utilize the arts as a tool in healing. I had the pleasure of meeting Larissa recently at an event at the New York Public Library where both of us spoke. Larissa has a master's degree in public policy from New York University's Robert F. Wagner Graduate School of Public Service. Before joining New York City Health and Hospitals Department, she worked for more than 10 years at Children's Hospital of the King's Daughters in Norfolk, Virginia in philanthropy and creating programs to integrate the arts into the hospital system. Larissa is a staunch advocate for the importance of the arts and humanities within the healthcare system to advance patient health outcomes, enhance staff engagement, morale, and retention, and to empower communities. Welcome to the show, Larissa. Let me start out with something um, with sort of that's on, on, on the website of the Arts and Medicine program. And then, you know, I want to hear exactly what your role is in this and can also talk about how we how we met. So let me just read this uh, verbatim. Um, the arts and medicine department at uh, New York City Health and Hospitals is part of a larger system-wide strategy to support workforce wellness. The department fosters the emotional well-being and promotes healing for patients, families, and caregivers. This is accomplished through activities and programs that utilize the visual, literary, and performing arts throughout the health and hospital system. Um, quite honestly, this is a topic that I have not thought about before I heard your talk in New York at the New York Public Library. So you are a key part of this program. You're the system vice president and you have spoken on, on this program. So maybe <clears throat> if you could give a brief introduction of of your role and how you came sure. to the program and, uh, you know, what your goals are. Sure. So um, thank you for that. I um, have have a little bit of a non-secuitous track to this position. Um, my background was in uh, development and fundraising for, for many decades. And the last position I had at a hospital in Virginia, I was the director of principal giving. And through that position started to um, bring in a lot of people in the art world to support initially as donors. And what we started to realize, and I worked with several um, significant artists at the time with patients, was that um, integration of the arts into the healthcare system was really something that was lacking. Um, and so we developed an art policy, a creative art policy, and you know, cut to about a decade later, um, they have a very robust and growing uh, program in my previous system. But what happened with New York City Health and Hospitals is really, I think, kind of singular um, for several reasons. And, um, you know, the 
the actual department really was more only formalized in about 2018 to be what it is today. And I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but historically, the department was really based on this really unbelievable visual art collection that we have that dates back to the 1930s during the Works Progress Administration. And so at that time, um, FDR wanted to um, very practically employ artists and create um, immersive experiences in public municipalities. And so we have dozens of uh, WPA murals throughout the system, um, and they're, they're quite spectacular, and they're very large and immersive. And they had been placed initially in staff uh, lounges, in patient spaces, and have some have been moved, some have not. Um, but this early idea that the arts were an additional avenue to support healing and to support people's experience in the hospital was sort of a profound one, not in history, but really for this system. We are the largest public safety net system in the country behind the Veterans Administration. And the system is comprised of 11 long-term care, 11 acute care facilities, five long-term care, and over 70 clinics in all five boroughs. And it treats about 1.6 million New Yorkers every year. So there's really a, and, and employees, by the way, about 45,000 uh, employees. So there was really, um, uh, the, the use of this visual collection was to equitably distribute it throughout that entire system I just described to contribute to healing environments and to contribute to patient and family and staff's experience. But I think at the time, it wasn't really studied the way it has been now to sort of demonstrate how incredibly essential and effective that really is starting to look. I mean, um, I, think, I mean, may interrupt. I mean, what I couldn't believe, I mean, the size is like 7,000 pieces of art are contained. So the biggest... I mean, the largest art collection in the country. It's one of the largest public art collections that we know of in the country that's in a non-museum setting, for sure. And, you know, we're, we have some incredibly significant pieces. We cross-pollinate with many of the same artists that are at the Met, that are at the Whitney Museum of American Art, that are at the Brooklyn Museum. So, you know, and we we do some programming with those institutions as well. So it's really it's really quite unbelievable. And it kind of remained honestly a hidden secret until um we've had some some wonderful exposure with PBS and then with um, a recent article this past fall on the history of the collection in the New York Times so um the you so it's 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 been an amazing um uh, opportunity to make sure that we're we're providing these uh pieces and spaces where our patients as I said patients and staffers are the other arm of arts and medicine is the program programmatic side. So we have um, many, several evidence-based programs that we deploy. And the majority of what arts and medicine does is focus on our staff because there is a deep recognition that if the staff have the care that they need and the mental health support, then that will correlate with better patient care, better compliance, all sorts of different things. So. And, and we have some patient programs, but a lot of our facilities also have them. So that's one of the reasons this was really a broader um, system-wide strategy. But let me back up for, for one second and also just say the other unusual thing about the arts and medicine department is a structural decision made by the system to place this department on the, the cabinet for quality and safety. So I sit at a um, on, in a cabinet with 14 other entities representing the entire system. And, and um, it's anything from the head of infection disease, infectious disease to um, the NYPD and security and 
um, data and analytics and arts and medicine because there was a, and wellness. And so, you know, our, we are all tasked with making sure that we are um, looking out for the culture and safety of the whole organization. And I, Dr. Katz, who's the, the current CEO, um, really kind of recognized that this was an important thing to do when he took office in about, I think he was there 2017. So he and Dr. Eric Way both really recognized um, that this would be an important thing for them to do as they looked towards lots of different avenues to support the staff in the system. So as I said, we're one of we're a larger system-wide strategy. It's a three-pronged strategy that includes um, help uh, H3, which is helping healers heal, which is a secondary victimization um, support, peer support for mainly physicians and nurses once they go through um, traumas that they they um, that healthcare workers entail all the time. Um, then there's a wellness one that has a very robust LCAT or clinical art therapy program. And then there's arts and medicine. And the distinction between the latter two is that the LCATs, uh, you know, and, and art therapies are seeking clinical outcomes, whereas we are providing art interventions and art making as an additional resource to support mental health. Um, so that's sort of just the balcony version. Um, and then there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of uh, nuance to that as well. Yeah, it's 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 kind of amazing that you know hospitals in general and and uh, probably public hospitals even more so um, <clears throat> are are a place that create a lot of anxiety and severe stress amongst the the the, the staff and the physicians dealing with you know really impossible situations and and life threatening situations and suffering um, to bring art into such an environment is 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 an amazing. Uh, uh, you know, feet. I mean, I, I now that I've read about it and listened to you talk and uh, and and we've been talking about it, it's it makes a lot of sense. So, but I don't think people have really come up with this in any significant way, particularly on that large scale. You know, yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's yeah. There's it, art therapy and in, in, in psychotherapy and, <clears throat> but but not on this on on a scale like this. You know. No, and and you know what's interesting though that you know there's a lot happening in the field right now. This is a really big moment for arts and medicine programs worldwide. And I think the big sort of universal question is, you know, what what is it that we need in this life to thrive? And you know, are we looking for longevity? And I know you've talked a lot about that in some of your discussions, and that we have you know achieved so many medical. Um, you know, amazing breakthroughs that we can live a long time, but what does the quality of our life look like? And, you know, thinking about all of the things that create awe and, and joy and what really reflect, what really, you know, looks like a flourishing life is a huge part of that is the arts and cultural interventions, the arts and humanities. And so, you know, the, the, fact that we're to me now it makes such it's so obvious but I think more than ever because we're a public safety net um, people including staff are already coming from high um, uh, you know traumatic or um, stressful environments and you know the majority of our our we we treat um, everyone regardless of their circumstance we have the largest percentage of substance abuse and people experiencing homelessness and immigration and asylum seekers so there's just these tremendous like social layers on top of everything um, that are contributing to this kind of stress but what i think's gotten really interesting and i'm sure you're deeply aware you know is this field of um neuroaesthetics 
um, that is really looking at cortisol levels and what is really happening um, to the, when you're under stress. And again, you could really answer that very, very easily. Um, but I think that what they're finding and what's happening um, all over the world is that art interventions are decreasing people's stress levels and they're feeling better in those environments. And that's then again, that's then correlating, uh, as I said earlier, with uh, maybe it's better compliance with their doctors talking to them because they're they're calmer. So there's just all sorts of different ways that they're starting to learn about how um, not nice or what we intrinsically know the arts kind of make us how they make us feel, but but actually that they're sort of I always say they're an essential hospital piece of equipment, and that if you are not providing significant visual art and art programming sort of, I believe in the way that we're, we're trying to, to achieve, then you're, you're actually not really providing the best kind of healthcare. You're providing partial healthcare. So um, that's really become a very big mission of ours. But I think why this space is becoming particularly interesting right now is that on the global level, the World Health Organization, um, who's always obviously worked in the art and health space, has really um, sort of amped up their um, their strategy around this. And they recently um, they recently appointed, for example, uh, the Sopranos Renee Fleming and Preti Yundi to be ambassadors for them in this space. And Renee's doing some incredible work um, there. But, but she's, as a, a little sidebar, she's a really interesting example because she said for years, people would come up to her and say, your music saved me. Your music got me through my cancer treatments. Your music just really, really um, helped me heal. And she said, after a while, she started thinking, there's got to be some empirical evidence to this. There's got to be some additional reason people are saying this. Um, and to her credit, she started to research it a lot and um, has really been making some incredible headways. Um, but that, so the WHO has been very um, instrumental in that. But there's also been some um, and the National Endowment for the Arts in, in, in this, I mean, there's just so many different kinds of um, global and then federal entities that are looking at this and then state and local. Um, but, but the most significant one right now, I think, in the United States is our U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy's um, report on loneliness and social isolation. And how are we addressing that as a country? And what are the reasons that people are feeling really lonely? And loneliness is is. And like an illness, and it's something that can affect your stress. Obviously, you know, all, have all these different um, markers to to impact your health. So I think the fact that he's kind of raised the the flag on that is really important, um, and it's creating some awareness. I think, as I said, WHO is as well. Um, but then a couple states, it's Rhode Island and California, are really the leaders right now. Massachusetts as well in this kind of idea of a statewide sort of interdisciplinary approach to he the health of their communities. So they're looking at in Rhode Island, the Rhode Island School of Design and some other and other um, local entities all came together to say, how can we really be thinking about this, the community's health? So they're kind of the trailblazers, um, the Rhode Island State Art Council in, in kind of creating these sorts of frameworks um, that are supporting um supporting health i mean in general you know when you go to private like when i look at ucla you know the the center for health sciences beautiful new building you know costs cost billion dollars to build and with artwork in it the same at cedar sinai it was mentioned in one of these articles 
So the the well-to-do, the, the healthcare facilities for the well-to-do have jumped on that. Uh, I don't know if they jumped on it with the same realization or the, the same, you know, theoretical conceptualization of, of art and, and, and health. But this is up to now really been absent for for the for the you know for the public health system. Uh, right. I can speak about New York, not experienced it, but I would imagine it's not not common there. So, um, right. to 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 have this situation as an example, um, as a leading example that you have one of the biggest you know uh, non-museum art collections in the country. Possibly in the world, you know, in in a space that's traditionally not uh, be uh, has has not embraced this this connection between art and healing and wellness uh, is is pretty remarkable. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that it's it's interesting. I always sort of joke that we kind of get the we're so big of a system that we can always say, oh, we're, we are addressing the most uh, people in this population. And so we have the most art interventions, but the reality is what you just said is very true that with, there's a lot of other, the Cleveland Clinic, for example, has an incredible art collection. I mean, there's a lot of other more affluent systems that have for many years brought in art for different reasons in Mount Sinai. I mean, some of them were one donor or a couple of donors or collectors, um, but others, the system itself sort of recognized that their clientele would probably want to feel comfortable in those places. And so, um, you know, I do think it's it's not only unique, but again, really in incredibly important that we um, are considering that for our populations, particularly because the social disparities component and all of these other reasons that people are in our system to begin with, um, I think that makes them even more um, it's it, it even more important that they get exposed to these things because a lot of um, our the people that we serve may not go to museums on a regular basis or may not have access to do that. So we've done a lot of um, different things to make sure that we can create that access. We're on the Bloomberg Connects app, um, and we're using that in the in new patient packets for people to download so they can be in their bed and they can see all the artwork in the hospital on their phone or on an, a tablet that we may provide. So there's a lot of different ways to um, to really be thinking about how we're how we're using the arts, but one of the programs that we, I think is one of our most significant programs is called Heart of Medicine. And it's an empathy building workshop that um, really kind of started with a physician at Yale in the early 90s, where he recognized that his young residents were, you know, obviously tired and overworked, but they were just making really sloppy diagnostic um, conclusions. And so I'm sure you've heard of this, you know, kind of model, but he brought them to the Yale Art Museum and said, you know, we're going to look at art. And he sort of, he recognized that after a period of time that looking at, you know, observational art, and now we know this has been researched, um, really helps to deepen empathy. It really helps to create better diagnostic skills and all these things. So we've sort of iterated that model and we will use a piece from our collection. Um, we will project it on a screen with a group of staff. Um, and sometimes the staff is from all different areas of the hospital um, in one room, it's about 30 people. And other times it's very specific customized teams. So it could be palliative care team, or um, we're working with the correctional health services on Rikers Island right now um, on a series of workshops for that, those staff. Um, but but they, they hear from an art, curator from one of those the museums that we're partnered with. So let's pick the Whitney Museum. We'll bring their educator and an LCAT. 
um, the art therapist, and they'll go through an art observation session and then an art making activity and then a group, sort of like a group therapy share out at the end. And what's really remarkable is you would think that people would feel hesitant to speak in a group like that or maybe a little vulnerable. But what happens is people really start to feel this shared experience in the hospital and it creates um, some team cohesion and really um, a, a deepened, you know, empathy for one another. So that's been a very growing, um, a very, you know, important program. You get a lot of buy-in from the physicians. I mean, who is, who is more, um, you know, affected or excited about this, this, this program? Is it a physician yeah. or the staff or? It's really, that's such a great question. You know, they, I always joke that, you know, we're the only department that every, we never bring a problem. You know, everybody loves us. When arts and medicine comes to, to support them or do an exhibition, I mean, we do a lot of different things. Um, they are joyful because they know we're bringing happiness. We're not there to, you know, do any, that's our entire goal. Um, you know, and so, but, but it's interesting. Our, our clinical teams, our providers really really appreciate it because they too are looking for myriad ways to support the, the mental health of their staff and their teams. And post-COVID, our health system, obviously, like many others in the country, if not all, really suffered a lot of workforce, um, you know, people leaving. And so how are we, how are we creating an environment where um, they feel cherished and valued? And so one of the ways is to not provide necessarily um, opportunities for them outside of the hospital. We do some of that. Um, but really to come where they are during their workday. And I think that they feel if the system is sort of creating an infrastructure that engages them during the day and gives them a little, some, a contemplative moment or two, it's, it's, it's definitely helping them feel um, an enhanced trust in the system and a greater sense of belonging. And, and we're, we're starting to do some pretty um, robust evaluation now on what that, how that correlates with the mass block burnout inventory and what, if that, if that's really um, connecting to retention uh, based on some of the different things that we do. So um, the, the clinicians really um, appreciate it. And when they find out about it, because for some reason they haven't, because it's such a big system, um, I'll get emails all the time that they said, I'm just finding out about this. This is unbelievable. Can you please, um, can we do one of these programs for our um, teams? Yeah. I mean, I, I can imagine that, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of young physicians. I think that what this would be really appealing to, I mean, there was I, I remember from this uh, public library event, there was a young physician, but this wasn't about art. This was about, you know, volunteer work, um, mm -hmm. um, helping the uninsured. Um, yes. yeah. So that that kind of spirit, I think, is would be particularly, you know, people with that kind of um, attitude would be particularly attracted to, to, to having yeah. these environments. Well, yes, and that's Dr. Jimenez for New York City Cares, and that's an incredible program. And, and actually, it's interesting you brought that up. And another, that's just another one of the ways the Arts and Medicine Department department will partner. So he and I are they are doing a rebranding right now of that so that they can get that out to the community. We have, as you know, an increase of um, immigrants in in New York City right now, and we're really looking to get them this this incredible resource it is. It's like an insurance card that lasts a year and it gets just a very easy um, access point for them for our hospitals. And so 
we are, he, he and I are working together with some of the artists that did art for our community mural program on developing some of the rebranding and what that looks like. And the artists that are involved happen to have been immigrants themselves. And so, you know, there's always, there's just, there's so much cross-pollination and what we do that's not even necessarily actually the arts that you think it is uh, traditionally. So there's just, um, there's just so many different ways that we're, we're constantly sort of seeking uh, gaps in the system and ways that we can help. Yeah, I mean, what I've written this, um, in, in this New York Times article, um, so it's a few pictures of Keith Harding, whom, whom I did, quite honestly, not know before, but, you know, the, the beautiful murals that he painted. Mm -hmm. when, when he did this artwork in, in the hospital, I mean, the way he, first of all, the way he chose the place where he wanted to do that, and secondly, and how he interacted with people coming Patients. into the hospital is sort of amazing, really. Um, he, he is an amazing, remarkable young man because what he did, and that is, that's that's actually a, an extremely significant mural. It's three, it's one mural, but it really is comprised of three very long and it's massive um, and it's extraordinary. So he went and he lived in the hospital more or less for two weeks and really interfaced with staff and patients and families to sort of inform how he was going to, you know, figure out what kind of a mural he wanted to do. Um, but what was what what's so great about what he did, he was really able to use his art in general to highlight awareness around HIV. And so, um, you know, he ultimately died of that in the, the late 80s. But he um, is a great example of how an artist can talk about difficult and complex issues um, that are facing society. And another fantastic example we have of that we have several in our system, but another one is a, a young um, artist named Amanda Finkapakata, who was became very did a mural for us, but then became very well known um, during COVID for Asian hate crimes because of the um, it being called a China flu or whatever the the negative um, the the negative labels were. And she created these beautiful murals all over New York City, and then they went all over the world. That really was able to raise awareness for this and um, and help support. Um, anti-Semitism. So again, there's just so many different um, ways that, you know, the artists not only build these beautiful environments, but are able to raise awareness for different um, service lines and different things that we're trying to do that are strategic priorities for the system. Yeah, I mean, to see, you know, to see medical centers, hospitals, clinics as 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 healing environments is, is I mean, this is sort of at, at the core of this, you know. Um, mm -hmm. At some point, they were basically just meant to be like, you know, like like repair places. People go there because something is broken down, and it's it's sort of a mechanical reductionistic approach to fix fix the problem and get the person out as quickly as possible. But with a lot of the chronic problems that people have, it's a, a different a different approach is is required, which is this integration of multiple components of and create a healing environment overall, which. Um, is holistic. It it includes the mind. It includes aesthetics. Um, uh, well, and and I I think what you're also sort of getting at is this whole idea. I may have shared a little of this with you, but around social prescription, and you know the social prescribing movement has been pretty alive and well and successful in Europe for um, you know a little less than a decade maybe, but it's starting to and that's. I think its success is partly because the healthcare models are very different there than they are here, um, and our challenges are different. Um, but the, the the essence of social prescription is providing non-medical interventions to support your 
health. So it could be, we, we did a study a couple of years ago with, um, it was a food prescription for young, uh, for newborns in the Bronx. And it was in areas that were considered food deserts. So when these children were born, they were given a two year supply of free fresh produce that came to their door every week. Um, and obviously that correlated with brain development and all sorts of other things, you know, very well. So that's a, that's um, one example, but with art and cultural interventions, social prescribing is really taking off and we're looking, um, you know, I'm constantly looking for ways to, to consider different system realignments with some current staff that could then take on this, this task and, and how it essentially works is the provider gives you your medical, you know, your, your medicine. So let's say it's your Lexapro or something, and then they offer you or the, or the social worker does, or a community link worker, whomever that point of contact is says, okay, we know that you like these, you know, you've, you've identified, and there's a lot of different ways to do this, um, these different things that you're interested in. So, you know, why don't you choose one? Okay. Here's a six month dose of ceramics class or, um, you know, different kinds of art, you know, or poetry or literary. And, you know, after six months, they come back and they, they assess it. And, you know, I don't know, to my knowledge, has anyone ever said, no, I don't want to do this anymore because it's, it's given to them. It's free, it's accessible. And there's, uh, there's a bunch of different, um, kind of models being built right now to, to, um, to consider different frameworks. Um, but that is definitely something we're looking at. And we're also, I'm really looking a lot at how to, um, do a social prescription model for our staff and what that would look like. And so we have some, you know, sort of incremental, we're doing some little things now. We have wellness concerts at Carnegie Hall and we offer, um, you know, some really interesting things that they can do outside. But again, looking at that other empathy workshop, what are the things we can bring um, to our providers during the day to, to support them from a cultural standpoint? Yeah, it's uh, fascinating coming back to a pretty mundane question and with all these exciting projects they're doing so i mean what's what's the business model who's who's actually paying for all of this yes great question so we've been we, um, a couple of things so we've been very fortunate it's um we have a grant and a very wonderful partnership with Lori tish um who runs the tish illumination fund and she has supported myriad things throughout New York City in her lifetime, um, but really uh, decided in about 2018, she was looking for gaps in art and health intervention. She's done a lot with the arts in New York City and came upon, um, you know, the, the public system and recognized that that was obviously one that really could use something like this, um, particularly, as we all know, during COVID and post-COVID. Um, so she really catalyzed it with a gift um, I think about five years ago and um, has since been really instrumental. So it's that, but we also write, uh, we write a lot of grants, um, you know, and, um, and do, and, and try to pull it together in a lot of different ways, but we're very fortunate to have that, um, have her support. So you have a background in, in, in fundraising and did you always have this this interest also in in in, in this medical the healing aspect? Has that always been there, or has this evolved with with your work in, in in fundraising? Yeah, no, I think it was a myriad of things. I think so. I have three sons, and my middle son, who's twenty four now, um, when he was a little boy, he was about five and was diagnosed with um, pretty extreme dyslexia, and we were constantly trying to figure out what could we do to keep his self esteem intact. What can we do? You know, this is really going to be a struggle. 
and we knew he loved art, but we didn't know he would ultimately be become a talented artist. So he, um, so we would, I would, we would provide him with all sorts of art interventions and and take him to different places and expose him to different experiences. And he kind of glommed onto um, animation and kinetic imaging, um, and has since is now getting his master's in the city in this very area. But you know, we I saw what it did for him and the value that it brought to his life and how it enhanced his joy. Um, and so I always kind of had that orthogonally in my mind as we I was kind of going through my journey in fundraising. But as I mentioned earlier, it was really um, when I was at the Children's Hospital and I partnered with an artist from the Midwest that wanted to work with the children in our oncology um, in our oncology department and develop glass fish to hang from the lobby. And this experience was so profound because not only did I see obviously what we, you know, what happened with the children and how that was such a great experience for them and the and the parents and the families, but it also created this broader sense of community with the glass studio, with the museum down the street, with people, you know, so all of these different entities were sort of coming together and it just kind of dawned on um, me at the time that this would be a really an interesting idea and something that they hadn't done um, at all. So that, so that was sort of how I came into it. Um, you know, and so the fundraising background's a, a great kind of skill set to have, but, you know, this really is such a joyful, um, and, and an honor to do what I do because I just feel that there's so many endless opportunities and there's so much, um, passion from artists to want to be involved and to want to, um, contribute. And it's, it's elevating, I think, artists, um, stature really in the world as, you know, it sounds, um, a little silly to say healers, but they really are in a lot of ways. Um, and so using them in the healthcare models is becoming, I think, a more of an important um, thing to do. Yeah, and I think particularly, you know, I mentioned this a little bit in, in uh, I mean, traditional medicine has been very successful dealing with acute injuries and, and, mm -hmm. and acute diseases, obviously. Um, you know, historical achievements, just alone the antibiotics, but surgery. But the medical system has not been very good in dealing with the the, the chronic, uh, you know, the chronic disease epidemic, the, the chronic non-contagious disease epidemic. And mm -hmm. more people are affected by this with all kinds of chronic illnesses. And I think to expand the model of, of healthcare to create these healing environments, not just the, you know, the mechanical fixing of an acute problem, I think is absolutely essential. And uh, yeah, I mean, and, and, you know, the CDC has said there's five or four different, um, you know, very preventable um, illnesses that can really be um, supported through different interventions and the arts and healing are, are one of those, you know, so I do think, I mean, we have a lot of, we partner with a lot of nonprofits in New York City, um, to work on supporting non-communicable diseases. We do a lot with Dance for Parkinson's, for example, and, um, you know, different movement and, and things that we know um, to support them. So I think that, I think you're right. I think there's just a lot of different ways that we were, it was so siloed for so long and it kind of still is that it's about time. They think if, you know, again, you have your medicine, but are you doing these other 10 things? And um, if you're in our public system, you may not have access to fresh food or, you know, some of the, um, some of the things that more affluent systems are able to offer. So, um, you know, being in this role and being able to uh, offer some of those experiences has really been um, very special. Yeah. And also like, you know, I mean, part of it, 
I think there's almost a dichotomy now. There's people that are really physicians in, in their training. And I see this, you know, when they come to us as pre-med students or the first semester, and it's probably not a coincidence that the majority are female, um, you know, physicians or uh, students. They they love these holistic concepts. You know, they like when they come to our center and we talk about the mind and the brain and how all this is connected. And once they go through the, I would almost say, brainwashing of of, of medical school that prepares them for dealing with a patient in, in a fifteen minute conversation and then. During that time, even sitting in front of the computer and typing in the notes rather than looking at the patient or touching the patient is so that's that's one direction. So you have these two and and some of these students or young physicians, they survive that brainwashing and maintain this interest for the holistic thing. I, I think what you're doing is just this should be propagated to as many of those patients. So they know there's another way of dealing with it, you know, with, with well, the, it's interesting, the young residents or the young fellows that we have, we've started to do um, when they come into our central office and go through the quality and safety cabinet and, and are working for us. Um, we've started to give them a program, a heart of medicine session and some other things related to arts and medicine. And one of the first questions I'll ask them, and these are incredibly intelligent young people are, you know, what, what do you think? how do you think the arts play a role in healing or supporting public health? And, and I mean, they're smart enough that they can kind of make some great academic, you know, connections, but once they have these sessions and they realize they're allowed to do these, these contemplative things that were normally, you know, historically in medical school, I'm sure 30 years ago, just looked down upon, you had to work and work and work. And, you know, I, I think that they really, really value it. Um, and the the other the chief medical officer at Harlem Hospital, Dr. Maurice Wright, um, tells his residents every week. He said, "You have this weekend, you have to go out into nature for an hour or something, you know." And he really commands them to. And he will he he loves all the visual arts, and he incorporates it into some of their meetings. And he'll go to one of the WPA murals, and they'll talk about um, one of the images, or we'll bring in one of our. Um, one of my staff people will go and, you know, really do an education session. So I think that you're right. I think that it would be, and I think that students that are studying science and those kinds of, um, you know, that kind of curriculum really could benefit tremendously from um, the, the arts and, and the humanities um, for their, for their mental health, but also just to enhance their skill level and their skill set and to be able to connect with people. And that's why people, I would imagine, go into um, medicine to begin with is to help others, you know. Yeah, and uh, you know the interesting thing. I mean, for me, as a scientist, it's 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 interesting. That we, you know, we now have ways of there's this whole field of psychoneuroimmunology. This you know how the things that we perceive and feel about and are stressed about gets translated in our body into gene expression in the immune system, and um, and and it 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 may not directly make you make you sick. But uh, it plays a big role in increasing vulnerabilities and counteracting these negative influences that come, you know, from the outside. The art would be a, a positive one. Um, but mm -hmm. you have to always realize, I mean, this is not just staying in your head. It's not just feeling better. It's actually being translated in biological processes that play a big role in maintaining your health or improving your health, you know. So, mm -hmm. um, 
yeah, when I listen to you, that that, that alone, you know, makes me think about like, all these potential mechanisms, <laughs> mechanisms how this gets translated into, you know, into in, in, into health and resilience. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and, I mean, I think you know the our community mural program that I think I spoke a little bit about at the the public library that day. Um, really is a wonderful exemplar of all of this work because it brings together um, the staff and patients and the community um, in these focus groups. I mean, there's like six or seven different kind of stages for each of these murals that we put into the system. Um, and that's what I was um, sharing with you earlier was that we are partnering with the Jamil um, Art and Health Lab at NYU um, in the World Health Organization to do the first large-scale study of what the public impact of, of immersive murals are in healthcare settings. And in and, and my system, you know, I think it's going to be particularly interesting because we really want to make sure that we are creating a sense of trust in the system and a sense of belonging and a sense of community. And so, you know, we're, we're working right now on what those evaluations will, will be, what they'll look like, um, you know, and then ultimately it's going to expand to a system in Slovenia, Nigeria, and the UK um, that all are also doing different versions of um, muraling and, and bringing communities together. So, you know, that when we identify the sites each year for these murals, um, it's really interesting because sometimes they're, in a staff space, um, or sometimes it's out on the street, um, you know, so there's just all sorts of different ways. Um, but the, the leadership are so excited because they know it brings their entire system together um, to create these murals and have fun. And the artists play are, are just wonderful as well. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think, I think there absolutely needs to you know, this whole idea of art and medicine and healthcare just really needs to continue to, to move quickly forward. Um, because I think that what, what we're going to find that, again, we both sitting here today probably intrinsically already know is true, is that the empirical evidence is going to show that this is something that um, is pretty obvious we should be doing um, in a meaningful way for, for, um, for full holistic health. Well, I, I think this is a great statement, you know, to conclude this conversation. I really enjoyed it. I have to say, you know, it's it's a lot of new territory for me in, in, in some ways, but I, I can totally relate to it. And I'm thankful that, you know, we, we both met by serendipity at this uh, New York Library event, because otherwise I, I, it may have taken me a lot longer to find out about it. So thanks so much, Larissa, for this conversation. Oh, th thank you so much. And thank you for all the incredible work that you're doing that I'm a little bit more well-versed in now. I appreciate it. <laughs>